Hey, Reality Family, welcome once again to our online gathering. I hope you've enjoyed this wonderful week of sunshine as much as I have, and thanks for taking some time out to, to uh, join us for the teaching portion of our gathering. We are going to be looking at Mark chapter 4 today, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there, and as always, if you're watching the video, the verses will be up beside me on the screen. The passage reads, starting in verse 1, Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased thirty, sixty, and a hundred times. Then he said, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Let's skip down to verse 13. Then he said, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And others are like the seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution come because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seed sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word. But the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seed sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundred times what was sown. This is God's word. Well, as Jesus does often, he is teaching here in parables, which is a story that helps us to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in the teaching of Jesus, this is a unique parable because he not only gives us the story, the first part of the reading, but then he explains it to the disciples and helps us to understand clearly what he's saying. And so this story has three components to it. The first is the sower. This is the person who's sowing the seed and throwing it on these various places. And this is God or anyone who joins in the work of God in the Gospel of Mark. The second component is the seed, and this is the life-giving good news about Jesus that we've been studying so far. It's also called the Word. And in the Gospel of Mark, we've, we've seen this, uh, this Word encapsulated or summarized in three different ways. The first is in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The second way is just a few verses later where Jesus says he has come to bring the good news that the kingdom of heaven is near. That not only is he the king, but he's bringing this cosmic rule onto earth. And then finally, the gospel is the whole book of the gospel of Mark. It's all of the life and the ministry and the life of the death, sorry, and resurrection of this cosmic king who has opened up the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so that's the seed in this passage. And then the third component is the soil. And this is the receiver of the seed. So the sower sows the seed into the soil. And this is really the focus of the parable, and it'll be our focus for this time today. And we'll start to ask what this, this passage asks, which is how do we, how can we receive this good news in a way that makes us good followers of Jesus? 
that's what we started to explore yet last week when we started to go back through the Gospel of Mark after looking at the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now we're going back to ask, how can we follow him? And last week we looked at the, the passage from chapter one where Jesus calls these fishermen to come and join him. And he says, follow me, which means it's an invitation to Jesus to come and to get behind him, to learn from him, to see who we are and be free in following this cosmic king, the crucified king. And he says, follow me and I will make you become, which means that there's a process to following him. There's, as we see in the gospel of Mark, these so many amazing moments, miraculous moments that the disciples get to witness, but also just a long obedience, step by step with Jesus on the road. So follow me and I will make you become fishers of people. And this does have an evangelistic thrust to it, but we also have to remember that Jesus is calling fishermen. And so what he's saying is he's inviting them to pivot their lives on the good news of Jesus and the invitation of him into towards kingdom purposes. And that's what Jesus is offering to any of us, to come in, to get behind him, to learn who we are by following him and join him on the process of making us become uh, who Jesus would be if he were us. As parents, as children, as single people, as doctors, as lawyers, as those without jobs, whoever we are, that we would find our calling and our home in the person of Jesus and pivot our lives towards the kingdom of heaven there. And so in this passage, it, it helps us to continue on this conversation by focusing on six different kinds of soil, that uh, six different receivers of this good news of Jesus. And there's three soils that don't receive the seed well. They are not fruitful. And then three types of soil where the seed does flourish. And so we're just going to go through the passage and look at each of these kinds of soils. The first one is the path. Jesus describes this in verse 15. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. So I think for many of us, the word that stands out in this passage is the word Satan. And we all come with preconceived notions of who and what that is. Um, I'm meeting with a group of people uh, from our church in our community hermeneutic practice where we come together and we study God's word together. And one person in talking about Satan said, my, my perspective is a lot like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Maybe that's the perspective you have. But this word Satan or the, the Satan means the opposer or the adversary. And that's what the Gospel of Mark emphasizes, that there is, just like Jesus is the king of heaven, there is this person who is the king of the dark forces in the world. And his job is to oppose what Jesus is doing, oppose the work of the kingdom of heaven. And as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is all about creating this space of shalom, of human flourishing, to stay in the passage and be that, that the seed goes down, and then it comes, it bears deep roots and it comes up following Psalm 1 that we, our roots would go down, that we become trees that are evergreen and bear fruit for the flourishing of the world. And that's Jesus' picture and perspective that we as a group of people would be like a forest that bears fruit for the blessing of the world. This is Jesus' idea of human flourishing. And the Satan, the opposer, works in the opposite direction. And in this passage, he's showing that by snatching away the seed before it can even go into the ground. Now, I want to highlight as well that for many of us, this is a very foreign way of looking at the world. As Western people, we don't tend to think of, you know, dark forces active and kings of dark forces active in our world. The philosopher Charles Taylor calls this a buffered 
uh, self of sense that I, it's like I have a, a shell outside of me that protects me from any kind of thinking like that, that there are dark forces and I live and we all live in this, in this side of this shell. But this is not a foreign language to the Bible and definitely not to the gospel of Mark. The understanding that there is a dark force out there and, and that there is a, a king, there is an, a, a key opposer is not foreign to, to Mark's gospel. We're reading from chapter four, but even in the first three chapters, Mark has already mentioned six times Satan or demons or these dark forces at work within the world. And we saw several weeks ago that when Jesus talks about why he has to suffer and die, it's because in Jesus' mind, we are tethered, we're under, we're enslaved to these dark forces and therefore we need to be ransomed. And that's why Jesus goes to the cross. And so it's very important to the worldview, especially in the gospel of Mark. If we want to understand what he's talking about, we have to open ourselves to see this, this view of the world. And it's not just a view that's ancient, actually. This perspective is, is, um, is true in, the, in much of the majority world. If you go to Asia or you know people from African culture or Latin American culture, there is a, a much greater openness to the spiritual realm. It's not, they don't have the same shell that we have as Western people. And uh, they, they, they're very open to the idea, generally speaking, or their cultures are open to the idea that there's something else out there, something we can't control, something bigger than us that is at work within our world. They're not buffered. Charles Taylor would call them porous. That, that these forces that are out there do invade and affect our lives. And we as Western, you know, enlightened, educated people, we might just look at this as superstitious, but actually their worldview, although we may disagree on what those forces are, is actually closer to the worldview of Mark and the New Testament writers than we are. So it's not just an ancient thing, this way of looking at the world, it's just not a Western thing. And the key point here is that this dark force and the opposer is active in the world. The seed gets sown, but the opposer comes and snatches it away before it even gets a chance to go in. And so some of us may feel that way. That may be how we feel about the good news of Jesus and this call to discipleship, that it doesn't even get close to going into our lives. Maybe we're antagonistic towards it, like the Roman leaders or like the religious leaders that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. Or maybe it's just not, it doesn't make any sense to us. It's like I said, it just got dropped and it got snatched away before we could even consider it. And if that's you, I just want to say I'm so thankful that somehow you're listening to this. And uh, we welcome you into our community. We, we don't want to shy away from hard questions. And you, uh, we want to welcome you here, no matter uh, if you're following Jesus or not. But I also want to take the opportunity from this passage to echo the words that Jesus says. At the beginning and the end of this passage, he says, listen, encouragement to listen. And he, uh, the, the word, the, the Hebrew word that he's referencing there is Shema, a very important word in Hebrew. And at the start of one of the most important Hebrew prayers to listen. And my kids would call this whole body listening or full body listening that they learn in school to actually orient yourself towards the speaker. And at Jesus, at the end of his parable, he says, let anyone who has ears hear. And it's an invitation from Jesus to you and from us to you to open yourself up to maybe hearing this in a new way, to leaning in and just exploring, could this actually be true? Could it be part of my life? That's the invitation of Jesus and our invitation to you. We'd love to explore this together, and I hope that you feel welcome as we explore. 
Last word on this is, you know, for those of us with friends and family members, you know, spouses, kids, uh, that would find themselves in this category, just antagonistic towards the gospel or, you know, just not interested at all. One of the things that this passage says to us is that there is an active force at work against them hearing the good news. I think as Christians, sometimes we really get tied into the idea that people are just an active rebellion to Jesus and they've heard the good news, but they're just actively walking away. But this passage shows us something different, that there is something else at work in our world that's keeping them from hearing and from listening. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they maybe are even in active rebellion. They just, it, it just hasn't gone in because it's been swooped away. And so I think for us, the Bible is really clear. We are actually powerless against the dark forces and against the opposer. That's why Jesus says we're enslaved to him. And so we can't do anything about his work in the world. But the story and the gospel of Mark is the good news and the hope that we need. That Jesus walks into our position and ransoms us and frees us. And his death and resurrection is the breaking of the power, these dark powers over us. So even though they are stronger, Jesus is showing that he, in the power of the resurrection, is the strongest. That he is the true king, that his kingdom is coming and won't be stopped. And so that should give us great hope, not that we are more powerful, but that he is. And just, I encourage you, for many of you, you may have been walking with friends for years, you have spouses or family members, just for years and years, you might think that there's no hope. The story of Jesus is hope for us. And so I encourage you to come to him and to pray and to beg him to have mercy and to stop the work of the opposer that the seed may go in. Okay, that's the first Uh, ground that we see it's the path the second ground is the rocky shallow soil verse 16 and others are like the seed sown on the rocky ground when they hear the word immediately they receive it with joy but they have no root they're short-lived so the seed goes in something springs up but it's a short-lived plant because it has no roots so what causes it to be short-lived well jesus continues When distress or persecution come because of the word, they immediately fall away. Distress and persecution are the things that stop it from taking root and from growing into this full picture of what it means to be human. Now, as we've seen in our study in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been with us, a disciple who runs away at the sign of persecution or suffering is a really big problem in the Gospel of Mark. Because halfway through the story, Jesus is very clear that he must suffer and die. That he is going to be the king who walks this path of downward mobility. And he calls his disciples to do the same. And so Jesus is warning in that passage and and here again that discipleship can't be conditional. We can't have conditions on our following Jesus. Another way of saying that is that there can't be any ifs. We can't say to Jesus, yeah, I'll follow you if. And we'll come back to that theme again and again in this study. Jesus here is talking in, the, in this parable in Mark 4. He's talking to the crowds. He's on a boat and all these people are following him. And he's talking to the crowds. And they have many ifs in their following Jesus. They'll say, I'll follow you if you stop the Romans from oppressing us. Or I'll follow you if you heal me. I heard a story about this other person in my town who met you and was healed. I'll follow you if I have that same encounter. Or I'll follow you if you work on my timeline, that you get, the, get us back as a, as a nation of Israel into prime time and you do it very quickly and in the way that I envision. 
And I want you to notice that each one of these ifs is rooted in assumptions about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It goes back to the first idea we explored in this series, that they have a Coleman barbecue version of who Jesus is and what the kingdom is and what the Messiah looks like, what a healthy nation is, a picture of what the good life could possibly be. And they're trying to shoehorn Jesus into that picture rather than do what Jesus is trying to do in the Gospel of Mark, which is to explode that picture and to give them a more full and beautiful picture of what it means that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus goes and pushes on each of these ifs for the crowd. He, kind of, he says, I, I didn't come to heal the healthy, but I came to heal the sick. I'm going to call people that will make you very uncomfortable into my family. I didn't came to conquer, but I'm not going to do that by killing all the Romans and setting up a new kingdom here on earth. Rather, I'm going to conquer through suffering and through service and through dying. You know, I came to make a new group of people, but it's not going to happen through these 12 men that are following me, the disciples, or, uh, but, but through three women, as we saw last week, that these three women are the ones that faithfully follow Jesus and are entrusted with the first seeds of the good news because they were there with Jesus all along. And these things drive people away because they don't match their idea of who the Messiah is. There's ifs attached to their following Jesus. But the problem is that standing on the shore in Mark chapter 4, these people, they don't know all this. They're expecting Jesus to fit into the Coleman barbecue version of him. And it's not until he goes to the cross that they reject him fully and totally. And this is our big problem as well in our discipleship with Jesus. We all have ifs. But many of us are unaware of them until Jesus pushes on them in our lives. You know, until we feel the, the pain of smacking our face into the wall of unmet expectations on the path of discipleship with Jesus. So how do we know standing on the shore? How do we know at this stage in our life what our ifs are in discipleship with Jesus? Especially at a time where, thank goodness, we're not persecuted for our faith. The disciples uh, that are following Jesus, that are in the boat with him, Christian history tells us that 10 of 11 of them died suffering persecuted deaths for their faith. That, thankfully, is probably not our reality. So how do we live, uh, find out what our ifs are when that's not our current reality? Well, this passage uses a really interesting term to describe the emotions we feel when Jesus pushes on our ifs, when he asks us to expand our Coleman barbecue version of who he is. And the Greek word behind the phrase fall away in this passage is, is actually scandaliz ontai, scandaliz ontai. I probably should practice that first. Scandaliz ontai, which is where we get our English word scandalized from. And this is the feeling I think that we feel. We feel scandalized by Jesus when he doesn't meet our expectations. It's those moments on the path with Jesus in discipleship where we ask him, how dare you? How could you ask that of me? How could you ask me to give this up? How dare you not bless me in this way? That's the feeling of being scandalized. Let me try to help with a personal example. Um, I went to, when I was in university, I uh, felt the call of God towards ministry. Now, I was never one of those you know, kids who was preaching at four years old and always hoped to be in Christian ministry. In fact, quite the opposite. And it was a really long, drawn-out process of me saying yes to God uh, saying this in my life. And I had many great mentors and helpers along the way that I'm so grateful for. And so um, I, I said yes to Jesus 
And in this way, it took a step of faith. And that brought me out to Vancouver with Sarah, where we worked uh, for a Christian nonprofit for, for several years. And, um, you know, my life, I think I, I had a lot of ifs that I didn't know about. And, and one of the ways I would put it is like an escalator, an escalator of expectations that I had. So I finished my undergraduate, I got married, so those expectations were met. And one of the next things you do is you get a job, I had one of those, and then you buy a house, and then probably have kids, and so on and so on and so on. This was my escalator of expectations, although I probably couldn't have articulated to you at that time. So of course we moved to Vancouver, um, working for non, a nonprofit. And uh, maybe a little bit more context here would be helpful. I grew up in a really small town. And in that town, everybody owned a house who hadn't done something um, significantly foolish with their money. Some people had terrible houses. Some people had really nice houses. But you owned a house. It was just what you did. And so that was on my escalator of expectations that I, as a person faithfully following Jesus with a job, would be able to buy a house. So a couple years after being here in Vancouver, we're feeling this call. We're following God. And the slowly the realization is dawning on me that we'll never own a home in Vancouver where we, God has called us to minister. And it was like that same feeling that I'm talking about, smacking into the wall of expectation on my path of discipleship with Jesus. And I got quite angry and confused and frustrated for a period of time. I got angry at people. I was thinking, you know, how is all this foreign money is causing this problem in Vancouver? I got angry at our government. Well, how could you let this happen? And I got angry at God. I'm working hard. I followed you into this ministry. I'm, it's not like I'm spending exorbitant amounts of money. I'm saving hard. And yet you're not meeting my expectations in this area. And it was a real wrestle with God and real time of anger and frustration and a real stumbling block, which is another way that this, this skandalizon is, is interpreted. A stumbling block to my faith. And all of us have those escalators of ifs in our lives, assumptions about the way that life should work. Maybe for you, not, it's not a house. I don't know what it is, but we, we say, I love Jesus. I'm a good Christian. You know, I serve in church. I, I tithe. I do all these things. And therefore, certain things should happen to me on my escalator of ifs. I deserve to be a middle-class person. You know, maybe I deserve to be married by the time I'm 30 or 35. I should live in a country that shares my values. And certain things shouldn't happen on this escalator. I shouldn't get terminally ill. My kids will be good kids. I won't struggle with infertility. That's not part of my escalator. And when these conditions aren't met, that's really where we feel scandalized by Jesus. How dare you? And some of us may at those points lose our faith or walk away. Christianity worked for me up until this point, we'll say, but then it doesn't work for me anymore. Maybe that's you. I definitely know there's people like this in my life. And that housing moment, as, as weird as that might sound for you, was one of those moments for me where I felt scandalized. And so this, this parable is a, is a check for each of us. What are those scandalizing things for us? What are those stumbling blocks? What is the escalator of ifs in your life? Where might you be scandalized by Jesus that's stopping you on the path of discipleship? So that's the second soil. The third is the thorny soil that Jesus talks about. Verse 18, others are like seed sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So this soil also receives the seed, the word, and it grows up, but it's choked out 
by three things. The first is the worries of this age. Uh, one other call, uh, translation calls this the anxieties of our time. And uh, I'm, I was reminded uh, of W.H. Auden's poem, The Age of Anxiety. Um, and I th think that's so true of, of us, especially in times of COVID and, and times of uncertainty. And like we looked at last week, these expectations that we have on our lives with no path to get there, like the fleet foxes sing. And so this is a question, what are the anxieties that are occupying your, our minds, your mind, my mind? And an invitation to do a mental audit. What are the things that are churning? What are the things that you're spending time worrying about? And of course, in an age of anxiety, there's going to be things. That's not the question. The question is asking, have you invited Jesus into those moments? Are you resting in him? Or are you letting those things actually distract you on the path of discipleship with Jesus? Is it choking out space for God? Uh, this week, I was um, part of a, a pastor's group, and uh, we were meeting together, and we start our time with a spiritual practice. The person who was leading us led us to uh, the end of the Gospel of John. The disciples are in this locked room, and they're afraid. They're afraid that they might get persecuted by the Jewish authorities. And Jesus comes into that room. It's a beautiful picture. He enters even though the doors are locked. And they're afraid of him too, until he shows him uh, his hands and his wounds. The resurrected Jesus that this is who he is, that he is the God who's walked the path of downward mobility. He knows what it's like to be in a place where you have no clue what's going on, to be afraid, to feel the churn of anxiety around you. He's, he wears those scars and then he offers them peace. He says, my peace I give to you. He, he says it twice. And this is the offer for Jesus, from Jesus in the places of anxiety in our world. And I know there are people in our community that long for peace, you believe in Jesus, you long for peace, but your life is filled with anxiety over many things. And I know that's a personal, um, you know, a, a personality thing as well. So I'm not trying to shame you for it. I just am asking, will you invite Jesus into that space? Take the road of discipleship with him rather than letting it choke out your fruitfulness. So the worries of this age, the second thing is the deceitfulness of wealth. This is the pursuit of money and the belief that it can offer us anything. And Jesus talks about money a lot, and, and we're going to come back to this theme in the next couple of weeks, so I'm just going to spend a minute on it here today. This is asking us the question, where, what are the promises that money is making to me in my life? What are the promises that money is making that I am believing? In my example that I just shared a couple minutes ago, that my, my, the promise was that if I had enough money, I would be able to get a house, and that would, make, that would, that would be my vision of the good life. That would help me on the path of the escalator of ifs in my life. That if I only had that, life would be sweet and fulfilled. What about you? What promises are money making to you that you're believing? And it chokes out our ability to follow and trust in Jesus according to this passage. So the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and then finally the desires for other things. And this is like a catch-all category if there ever was one. But this is allowing good things in our world to take the utmost importance in our lives. This is what we would call idolatry or the Bible calls idolatry. That our world is filled with wonderful good things, food, exercise, our bodies, relationships, leisure, whatever those things are, they're good. God creates a beautiful and good world. But when we take those things and we make them ultimate, we put them in the place of God, that's idolatry. That's where we get ourselves in trouble and we end up worshiping those things. 
Um, Paul calls this epithumia in the, uh, the Greek. The, the two words mean over-desire, that we over-desire those things. We put our desire for God there and they become idolatrous and they lead us away. They choke out God's place in our lives. One commentator said something that, that struck me as I was studying this. He said, the problem in discipleship is not a thick skull, but a wayward heart. The problem in discipleship is not a thick skull, but a wayward heart. And that's what this is getting at here. It's not that you don't have the information. It's not that you don't understand the gospel, but that our hearts have been redirected to different versions of the good life, things that we are now worshiping. And the question for Jesus, where am I over-desiring good things that's actually choking out my discipleship to Jesus? And in Mark, the gospel of Mark, the character that epitomizes this is Judas. He's following with Jesus all along. He knows all the information, but his heart is set towards money and probably towards uh, the acclaim of the Jewish leaders. And so he betrays Jesus. And we may not like the comparison, but I think this is us too in our world that we, uh, because we live in an affluent society with so much on offer, that we're so easily misdirected into different versions of the good life. And so if you're experiencing a lack of passion in your relationship with God, this is the place where I really encourage you this week to spend some time and to ask these questions and to hunker down. You know, with the last soil, the, the rocky soil, um, where it, it shoots up quickly, um, that, that soil, at least there's passion involved. When we smack our face uh, in, in, uh, against God, our if smack their face in discipleship to Jesus, there's passion there. In this one, there's a lack of passion. Our passion is actually redirected into other things. And so ask ourselves where you might be distracted, sorry, deceived or desiring the wrong thing. Because these things enter in. They choke out the word, as Jesus says, and make us become unfruitful. Which again is the vision that Jesus has for our life. To be trees that bear fruit for the blessing of the world. Now before we move on, I want to just acknowledge that this is not an easy passage uh, to preach or probably uh, to hear. Because it's it's a warning and it's a checkup. It's like a, you know, a discipleship dipstick. If you think of your car, there's a bunch of dipsticks in there. If you don't know about that, you probably should. You know, there's one for oil where we pull it and check the oil, uh, you know, or a radiator fluid or a power steering fluid or a windshield washing fluid. Again, if you don't know what any of those things are, you should probably have a quick check. But that's not a fun thing to do. Um, and, and so uh, this, this passage kind of may feel the same way. It's not something we want to do check the dipsticks in our relationship with God. And we might feel like it's harsh. God, why are you asking so much of me? You might think, I've never checked the power steering fluid in my car and it runs fine. Why don't I just do the same in my discipleship with Jesus? Why should I even have to check on this? So before we go into the last three soils, I want you to notice something. You know, parables are are so memorable and meaningful because they're told in a story format. And they're a familiar setting to the, to the original audience, but they're told with a twist. And one of my favorite commentators, his name is Klein Snodgrass. Like what, a, what a name, Klein Snodgrass. He says, this, uh, parables are, are stated with, imagine a world like this. That's how they start. Imagine a world like this. And they're an invitation to enter. Now, none of us are first uh, century farmers. As far as I know, you could, I, I don't know who's watching on the internet. And maybe we're just terrible uh, urban gardeners. But I think we can all understand that something very important that this story is trying to tell us. So I'm going to try to retell it so we can get it. Imagine a world like this. So imagine I get 
a, a coveted garden plot in East Vancouver. So I've won the lottery. It's a beautiful garden plot. It's safe. It's got a gate around it and I can plant whatever I want. So I invite you to come down, come down and check it out. So you come down, I show you around the place and I say, hey, I'm just about to seed. Do you have a few minutes? You want to help out? You say, sure. I've got 15 more minutes on my parking. Why not? So um, you notice that I'm holding a briefcase with a, um, with a handle around it that's tied to my wrist. And so very carefully, I open up this briefcase and inside is a bag full of seeds. And I say to you, these are my seeds. They're very, very expensive. They're super rare. And I actually did some research because I'm not a gardener for this parable. And some of the most rare seeds in the world are giant pumpkin seeds, which can sell for between $1,000 and $2,000. Who knew? So let's imagine in this bag that I have these giant pumpkin seeds. And I pull them out and I explain them to you. So I say, yeah, I had to give up all my life savings. You know, my kids aren't going to university uh, so I could get these seeds. And I had to sell a kidney. So here they are. And you're starting to wonder about me uh, as a gardener. I say, yeah, if you want to help out, why don't you do so? I'm going to grab some seed and, and sow it here on my patch. But I, I want you to come and take two hands of this seed. And I want you to just go and throw it over on that sidewalk over there. And then when you're done, come back and, and grab two more handfuls of the seed and just throw it on the path over there, kind of on the place where there's just a bunch of clay. And then come and throw the last portion of it into the thorns and then we'll be done. And at this point, you might say, you're very odd for having these giant pumpkin seeds and paying so much. And I don't know much about gardening, but this is not the way that you garden. You're, you might be the worst farmer that I've ever heard of. But this is the point of the parable. This is what the original audience would have hear, heard as they heard this story, that God might be the worst farmer because he takes this seed, this kingdom seed that Jesus has given his life for. God has given his absolute best, everything that he has for. And God is not careful with it at all. That instead, he's throwing it everywhere. He's throwing it wastefully all over the place. And that's one of the things we're, we're called to see if we want to understand this parable and want to understand what it means to follow Jesus with full hearts. That this is the character of who God is. He's a God who is wonderfully, extravagantly gracious to us. He knows that his seed will go to waste in the lives of the crowd. He knows they're going to walk away from him. And he knows that the same will happen in our lives. That he'll give us his absolute best and we'll turn up our noses against it. That Satan will come and foil his efforts in some of it. And we'll turn our eyes to other plants and other gods in the world, ignoring the work of his seed and not becoming fruitful. God knows all this, but yet he doesn't hold back. He gives his absolute best and he pours out his life and he pours out his love to us in wastefully extravagant ways. And so this passage is hard to hear and I don't want to sugarcoat it for us because that's not what Jesus is doing. But I do want us to see it in the context of God's bountiful grace and love towards each of us. It's because he loves us that he's telling us this story. He hasn't held back. He's given us his absolute best. And so he's not coming to you to wreck your life by telling you this story, by putting these you know, tests and dipsticks in, in the gospel. Rather, he wants you to be fruitful. This is what he has designed you for. This is what it means to be truly and fully human, just like Jesus was. He wants each of us to be fruitful and fulfill the vision 
of, of the true humanity, of a person who can bring shalom into the world. And so he gives us these tests and he shows us that he's a person who can walk this path himself too. And so in closing, let's look at the good soil. This is the last three soils. And really the question here is how can we become like this good soil? So it says, and the seed sown on the good ground hears the word. So that's the first part. But if you notice, every one of the soils actually hears the word. So it's not just hearing. It says it hears the word and it welcomes it. And this is the key for us today to becoming followers of Jesus, to becoming soil that the seed goes down in, is an openness to Jesus, an openness to the good news and the fullness of who God is, the fullness of who Jesus is and an openness to him exploding our categories. Another way of saying this might be hospitality towards the king in our lives, that he wants to come in and we're gonna make ourselves open to following him. That's the reaction of the first disciples of the fishers of the, the fishermen, sorry. It says in that passage that immediately they left their boats. Immediately they left their boats and followed Jesus. That they immediately walked away from their family, from their future, uh, from their finances. Uh, those all started with F. I'm trying to think of a fourth one. This was unplanned. But the point is to say they walked away from everything that they knew in order to follow him. And this is an immediacy, an openness, uh, an open stance towards whatever Jesus calls us to in discipleship, a welcoming of Jesus. How are you welcoming? Uh, I have a friend uh, that I was in a class with, and, and this week she asked us for prayer. And she said, um, it started kind of oddly. She said, well, three weeks ago I was watching the TV show House. So I'm thinking maybe she's going to ask for prayer for a Netflix addition, addiction. Sorry. She said, I was watching House. If you're not familiar, it's, it's this medical drama uh, show, TV show. And she said, the, the, in the show, the problem was that there was a character who needed a new liver and, or they were going to die. And so another character came and gave two-thirds of their liver and transplanted it so that they could both live. And she said, as she was watching this show, she just felt the calling of God that this is something she could do, she should do. And so she said she was by herself. She said to no one out loud, this is something I need to do. So she started in that moment asking questions. Is this even a real thing? Is it possible? Turns out it is. And so she went through a bevy of tests. And on Monday, she's going to go to the hospital and she's going to give out two thirds of her liver to someone she doesn't know who needs it, following God in her life. Now that's an extreme example, but I think all of us that were there praying for her were moved by just her responsiveness and her hospitality to Jesus in that moment, to call her to do something that's absolutely extreme. But I, re I just wanted that to be a reflection in my own life too, and of, of each of us, that we would have that same heart, openness to whatever Jesus is calling us to, whether it's as extreme as that or not. And so are you welcoming God? What has he asked you for hospitality for in your life right now? In discipleship. So they hear the word, the good soil hears the word, it welcomes it, and then it produces a fruit of 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. So there's three, three seals, uh, soils, sorry, there's three uh, non-productive soils, and then there's three productive, three that, that produce either 30, 60, or 100 times. And scholars are actually split on whether this is a miraculous amount of fruit or not. And so those on the miraculous side would say that the average yield of um, ancient Near Eastern farms, people actually study this, was 7.5 times. So that was considered a good yield um, from your seed. 
And so 30, 60, and 100 would be like an amazing, miraculous yield. And I think that's on, that's on um, available for us as we follow Jesus, miraculous fruit bearing in our lives. And I will say this to you, I have not been part of many miracles in my life. I think there's probably a few that I would call that, but there's still miraculous results that have come amazingly from just small amounts of faithfulness. I've been able to be parts of stories that I could never have imagined in the moment of generations of people knowing and trusting Jesus. There's miraculous things that have happened in my life. I've miraculously been changed in certain ways. And so there's a miraculous yield and change that happens as we bear fruit. But there's also a non-miraculous yield. And some scholars would say, uh, what Jesus is talking about here is a single seed going into the ground. And a single seed could bear 30, you know, one tomato seed, for example, could bear, I don't know if they're seeds, um, but it could bear 30 tomatoes or 60 or 100. That's not crazy. That's just good. And I think that's also true in our lives that there's a non-miraculous yield, the slow building of character that happens as we spend time in and around Jesus, as we engage in the activities that he calls us to do. Ephesians 2 says there are good works set out before the beginning of time that we're called to walk in as we step into those things and represent God in those spaces and places. Maybe in very mundane ways, we bear fruit. And both of those things happen, a yield of 30, 60, and 100 times. So the sower sows the seed, and Jesus has shown himself to be the king. The seed is that Jesus has shown himself to be the king that brings the kingdom of heaven into our world. That's what we've been studying in the first half of our time uh, in, in the gospel of Mark. And now he's calling us to follow me, he says, and I will make you become fishers of men. Allow the seed to come into your life. Be aware of the ways that we may not allow it to grow and flourish. Instead, may it take deep roots in our church and in each of our lives. May we grow up into these uh, beautiful, fruitful trees. Like it talks about in Psalm 1, evergreen, bearing fruit in season. And may God in his grace and in his glory bear a fruitfulness of 30, 60, and 100 times through our faithfulness. Would you join me in closing in prayer? God, I, I think um, maybe the call of my heart is just, may this be true. May this be true of my life, I pray. May this be true of each of our lives. And we pray against the work of Satan in our lives and in our community, we ask that you would open our eyes to the ifs, to the escalator of ifs that we all have that stop us from trusting in you and, and make us feel scandalized. And in those moments where we do, may we repent and believe the good news of the crucified King. And I pray against these things that grow up and choke out the word in our lives too. May we help us to be aware. And in the areas where we can't, because we're just lacking self-awareness, we pray that you would bring others around us that would make us aware. And we pray that we would be a group of people that produces fruit that honors and glorifies you. So as we sing, as we give, as we respond in community, we pray that you would make this true in increasing ways at reality. In Christ's name, amen.